Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Series 3 of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and my Ask Annalisa column appears in The Guardian every Saturday. Each week, I'm lucky enough to speak to some amazingly insightful, top-of-their-field specialists, and this podcast gives me the opportunity to speak to them in much more detail on subjects that come up all the time. I self-fund this project, and I'd love to continue to do more, so if you'd like to support us and also listen to this podcast series free of ads, do join us over on Patreon, where you can also get the podcasts before they go on general release go to patreon.com forward slash Annalisa Barbieri. Otherwise, you can leave a one-off donation on ACAS Supporter. You can find the link for that in the description of this episode. Or just please listen and share as much as you can. It would also mean a lot to us if you left a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to this gentle introduction to dementia. I was going to start with some statistics about how many people have dementia and how many more may get it in the future. But to be honest, it was so depressing, I decided not to go there, given that, largely, there's only so much we can do about it. Dementia is a scary word. Up until a few decades ago, I didn't know anyone with it. My first introduction to Alzheimer's was when my friend Sandra's dad got it, when we were in our late teens. Now, quite a few members of my family have dementia, and I've seen firsthand its effects, not only on those afflicted, but the people around them. In this podcast, I talk to Julie Green, who works for Dementia UK. She's the Deputy Clinical Lead at the Admiral Nurse Dementia Helpline and has worked in a dementia specialist role for the last 12 years. She also has 30 years experience as a nurse working in caring for the elderly. Julie is also a family carer for her mother-in-law who lives with her and is in the moderate stages of vascular dementia. I first spoke to Julie in late 2021 and she was so gently caring and helpful I wondered why I'd never rung Dementia UK before. Caring for someone with dementia can be very isolating and bring up some less than charitable feelings. Julie was wonderfully supportive and I hope you find the same with this conversation. 
Julie, hello. You and I spoke at the end of 2021, and I don't know if you realise, but our conversation was quite life-changing for me. There was a couple of things that you explained to me, although we were talking about a reader's mum, but were really relevant to me and members of my family, and I'd like to go into more detail about those, the things that you said. One of the key things you said is, Annalise, it's not about facts, it's about feelings. We'll talk about that, but can we start off, Julie, with what is dementia? Hi, Annalise. So yes, absolutely. It's often something that people find quite confusing, actually. Dementia, basically, is um, a term that's it's an umbrella term that's just used to describe some common symptoms as things like memory loss, confusion, problems with speech and understanding that can get worse over time. Um, there are actually over 200 different types of dementia, which can be really wow. surprising, can't it, to know that. The most common ones that you can sort of bring down to sort of five or six common types, Alzheimer's being one type of a dementia. Basically what happens with dementia is that the person's brain cells just aren't working properly and that affects their ability to remember, to think and to speak and to function in the same way. So Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. Mm. What are the other, you said there was five, what are the other main four? Vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia, frontal temporal dementia and mixed dementia mixed being a combination of the previous ones we've just highlighted is alzheimer's the most common type of dementia it is yes closely followed by vascular dementia and then the mixture of the alzheimer's and the vascular dementia that makes up over three quarters of the dementias Um, i mean we hear so much about alzheimer's in particular what is it that makes it alzheimer's Alzheimer's disease, it's about a build-up of proteins in the brain, which damages the brain cell's ability to transmit messages. Very different, say, for example, to vascular dementia, where there's been a problem with the blood supply. Um, So that's, I would say, the difference. And generally, you would find with Alzheimer's disease, there's a more steady, progressive decline, whereas with vascular dementia, you find more step-down deterioration. So it's not a steady and general decline. It's more of a sudden decline, then it plateaus out, and then it's a sudden decline again. So that's almost the differences between the two. Because I always think, and I know this is wrong, but Alzheimer's is when you don't recognise people. That's not correct, is it? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. All types of dementia, you you may or may not be able to recognise people as it advances. But certainly some people can still, with Alzheimer's disease, can still recognise people right up to the end. But it'll be different things that they will struggle with. But what's the difference between dementia and just getting older? Mm, that's a good question as well, because I think for a lot of people, it's something that we worry about. And as people get older, we may well go into a room and think, oh, I can't remember why I've gone into the room. What was that for? And people worry, is this a sign of dementia? And I think what we will be meaning is that the effect on the brain, such as the memory loss or the confusion, is something that impacts everyday life. It's more than just simple forgetfulness. This is something where the memory or the forgetfulness is impacted there a person's ability to conduct their life independently. So can you give me an example? Because, I mean, I, you know, as I've got older, I forget where my keys are and sometimes somebody tells me something and I think, oh, but it doesn't impact my life. But isn't that like an early sign of dementia as well as just getting older? Because I think a lot of people do panic, especially if they have it in the family. I agree. I agree. And I would always encourage anybody that if they notice anything that's concerning them about their memory, 
to start jotting it down and look watching to see how often it occurs and if it's something that's really becoming worse or impacting the person. But I think the significant issues that probably somebody would want to look out for is, for example, when they're perhaps going to a cash point and putting a PIN number in, as something that perhaps they've done lots and lots of times, normally no issue, but actually they struggle to coordinate what they're doing and suddenly it becomes a bit overwhelming, bewildering and takes some time to be able to do the task that usually they would have done without any problem. How is it diagnosed? Because how how do you know which one you've got? Yes, well, I think the, the, the first thing that you would do if you've got any concerns would be to speak to your GP and your GP would be able to start off some tests. So they would look at taking a really good history, not just what you've noticed, but perhaps what your family or friends have noticed. And they would start to ask you questions to sort of see about your understanding, your reasoning, your awareness of spatial awareness, etc. And if they identified that there were problems, you'd be referred to perhaps to a neurologist or a specialist care of the old elderly consultant or the memory clinic. And at that point, they would do lots of investigations They will be looking to see with brain scans, blood tests. Of course, bearing in mind, it's so important that we are all aware that these symptoms could be something treatable that mimics dementia, but isn't dementia. Such as? Well, there's some people can present with um, electrolyte imbalances, vitamin deficiencies, um, even depression can sometimes mimic some of the signs and symptoms. So the way we diagnose dementia is it's a diagnosis of exclusion. And what that means is to investigate and to treat anything else that could be possibly causing those symptoms before reaching a diagnosis of dementia. But can they absolutely diagnose the type you have through brain scans and blood tests? Or is it just, well, it might be this? I mean, what shows up on a brain scan? It is possible to diagnose the type of dementia that is most likely to be on a brain scan. So the brain scan, for example, it will show where damage has occurred to the brain. So we can see with Alzheimer's disease, a scan of a person with Alzheimer's disease compared to a scan of somebody of the same age without Alzheimer's disease, we can see um, real changes on the scan where the brain appears to have shrunk and and that's what we call atrophy. Mm -hmm. You can see those changes on a brain scan. With vascular dementia, it's certain parts of the brain will have been affected where there's been an interruption to the oxygen, to the blood supply, to that particular part of the brain. So it sounds like really a brain scan is kind of like the ultimate diagnostic tool, is that correct? It is really key. But equally, as I say, the cognitive assessments that the clinicians will undertake, as well as the person's description of how it's affecting them, because remember, every dementia is different and personalised to that person. Yeah, I totally agree. I have a few people that we know that have dementia and they're all slightly different, which I have to say kind of makes it much harder. Can you explain what's happening in the brain? 
in a really sort of simple terms, our brain is filled with brain cells, neurons, which deliver messages across the brain and to our body. And with dementia, those brain cells become damaged and therefore the messages can't reach different parts of the brain, they can't reach our body. So the everyday life that we take for granted becomes more and more problematical. I'm guessing that if we think of the brain as a department store Mm -hmm. and one looks after language and one looks after... I don't know, social skills or memory or movement or something, then does it depend on which of the departments in the store have been affected? That's a really, really good analogy and a really good way to look at it. And it's not just about which part has been affected because all of the parts will impact each other. So it's a good analogy to think about a department store working together as a whole not in separate silos Mm. because I've got an aunt for example who has I believe diagnosed Alzheimer's she hasn't been able to speak for quite a long time Mm. but my uncle who's got Alzheimer's can talk but he has no idea who his sons are so just in my own family I've got two really different examples And I think that that must make it sort of harder because going back to what I was saying about the difference between dementia and getting older, some of the queries I get from people and some questions I've asked myself is, you know, is that person getting older or is there something more that's going on? I'm imagining in those early days, it must be really confusing to know what's what. Absolutely. Um, And it goes back to what we were saying previously, doesn't it, about when you've met one person with dementia, that's exactly it, you've met a person with dementia, because it is so different. And the natural thing that a lot of us will want to do, and we'll get a lot of support from talking to other people who might be in early stages of dementia, or from peers who might be caring for somebody with dementia, um, which is incredibly supportive. But equally, you can find yourself comparing the journey and thinking, mm. oh, well, I'm not doing that, or my loved one isn't doing that. Um, so does that mean they're earlier or later in the stage? And that in itself can be really overwhelming and confusing. That's where I I fundamentally believe that people need to reach out to professionals and for that professional support to be there to help people with that personalised individual journey that only that person is experiencing. Um, So although there's lots of broad suggestions, tips ideas it's about taking those and looking at that in context of the individual and the person that's living with the disease yeah and unfortunately especially at the moment you know that's very varied as to what treatment or even if you get to see a gp Mm. you know say you do have someone and they're sort of they're doing okay why is it so important to get a diagnosis yeah i mean there are some people that are very reluctant to get a diagnosis um and i think that's completely understandable. I think there's still quite a stigma around having a diagnosis of dementia. But there are lots and lots of positives. I'll never forget one situation that will stand with me for a long, long time. This was um, a lady that I looked after several years ago who had moderate stages of dementia. She was aware that she'd got the moderate stages of dementia, but she desperately didn't want her children to know this and she kept it completely secret from them they'd never actually never talked to them about them she her whole focus was about trying to prevent them from Mm. knowing I met the son and he said to me whatever you do don't tell my mum she's got dementia we know but 
awful if she ever found out she wouldn't be able to cope with it and it was so sad to see these two people that were so close had had such a close relationship for all those years but just actually didn't feel able to talk to each other and support each other that's quite a significant example but it's not uncommon so one of the first things i think about getting a diagnosis of dementia is it helps families to talk about what's happening and and to be able to explore and plan for the future obviously and sadly dementia is a progressive disease people will deteriorate and I think it's so important to get a diagnosis as early as possible so people can talk together with their family about what they would want for the future what's important to them something we call advanced care planning which can include just expressing wishes but also writing down what you would want so I think that's really really important I think as you say Annalisa unfortunately there's limited access to support at the moment coming out of the pandemic but there still is quite a lot of online support and groups are beginning to open up again where people can meet with other people with dementia and other carers with dementia and that as I say is invaluable support but also depending on what sort of dementia that the person may have for example if the person's got Alzheimer's disease there is medication that can help almost boost the neurons so they can help to support that messaging so although it can't slow down the disease it can help people live better with the disease Mm -hmm. Um, and lots of people have described to me that with the medication it feels like the fog in their brain clears and they can think more clearly yeah if when you think of it from that perspective there's lots of positives about getting a diagnosis rather than just thinking this is old age, it happens to us all, nothing we can do about it, which I think was the perception of some years ago. Well, I suppose it's it's also kind of frightening. And I mean, I think the, the model you described about, you know, planning and stuff is lovely. But my experience, both professionally and personally, is that people don't want to know and don't want help. So you'll get the adult children saying, you know, I think we need to, and they're like, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong. And so that makes it very difficult yeah to plan or really to face up to it and my gosh I really understand that strikes me from what you're saying and please correct me if I'm wrong that it's it's a kind of brain sort of shutting down like a a brain failure Mm. and the brain is an organ and if it were any other part of the body like kidneys or the liver we would maybe think about it kind of differently but obviously the brain is is our head (laughs) and it's also like it it governs everything do we have any idea why so many more people are getting dementia and before you say because we're getting older I personally see I struggle with that because all my grandparents live to be really really old and I don't remember they were a bit sort of you know dothery but I don't remember it existing does anybody know what causes it There's so much research still going on and still to be done for us to have those definitive answers, Annalisa. I think, um, and I know that you're not too keen on hearing the answer about (laughs) it being because we're an ageing population, but we know the instance of um, dementia becomes more prevalent the older we become. So we know that that's an issue. But we also know that there's other things that can increase our likelihood of having dementia. For example, women are more likely to um, have dementia than men. And there's lots of things that we just don't have the answers for at the moment. 
there are things that we're aware of that can make a big difference. We're becoming more and more aware that leading a healthy lifestyle in midlife can really have a huge impact on our later life. So even sort of in our 40s, 50s, eating a healthy diet, a healthy balanced diet, reducing alcohol intake, exercise, managing long-term conditions like diabetes, etc., to ensure blood sugar's at the right level. All of those things that we know that are good for us do appear to have quite an impact on reducing our risk. Having said that, as we know with all things, it's about reducing a risk, but there's no way of completely stopping your risk. One of the reasons that people know that a relative might have it is because they'll say things like they've suddenly started becoming very disinhibited or they'll start doing something out of character. And that to me seems quite obvious. But in other cases, it's almost like the person becomes sort of more extreme of themselves. If they're anxious, they become very anxious. If there's a sort of person that thinks somebody's stealing from them, they become obsessed with somebody stealing you know those sort of examples I mean your experience how much does personality impact on how the dementia may show itself I think it's a huge factor I really do I think that I've seen people for example that have always wanted to stay desperately in control and those people can often find it harder and harder to accept the diagnosis and when they find themselves feeling that losing control, that could be really overwhelming for somebody. Equally, I know that people that are highly intelligent, for example, may really, really struggle to accept the loss of their intellectual prowess and and spend time doing something we call confabulating, which is almost coming up with an answer that they think is plausible, um, rather than to accept or demonstrate that there is a problem with their mindset. Can you give me an example of that? So I think we, you might find somebody who's asked a simple question about where something is and rather than say, I don't know, I don't know where it is, I don't know what I've done with it, come up with an answer about, oh yes, somebody came last night and took that away. And families will say to me, well, they've started lying rather than understanding that in their mind, they're trying to come up with a solution that sits comfortably for what's happened rather than just accepting, I don't know. I'm going to have to take a moment there to digest that. I, that, I really recognise that. Any other examples? We touched on earlier about um, feelings, didn't we? And that feelings stay in place. And as you said, I think that it's, I've observed, and this is my personal observation, that people, as you say, that are predisposed to being more anxious or perhaps struggling to cope can be exacerbated and almost more pronounced as dementia starts to advance. And one of the things that we would do as Admiral Nurses is support the person or the family to look at the way, how did a person used to cope when they had problems? What was their go-to? What things helped them? What things didn't help them? What was their personality like? And then from that, be able to work out how we could provide that person with support because they may not be able to tap into what their previous coping mechanisms were. Yes, I mean, this brings us nicely to something you explained to me when we first spoke, which is that as someone gets older anyway, that's difficult. But then if they start having dementia and they can't do certain things, and I suppose the people around them, it's very easy to disempower them, isn't it? 
Mm. Oh, let's not worry about this. Let's not worry about that. And and actually, before you know it, the whole essence of who they are. I mean, you said to me, you know, if that person likes to feel helpful, if that was their kind of modus operandi before, then you need to find ways of making them helpful. It's very hard not to make dementia all of what that person's about, isn't it? Absolutely. Where we've moved so much with dementia over the last 10, 20 years is not just seeing it as a debilitating disease that nothing can be done about, but really supporting the fact that people can still have a real quality of life and live well with dementia. And um, a lot of that is about people around the person being able to support their personhood, support who the person still is. I'm a great believer that the person is the person right through the illness and that the person is still there, but it's harder and harder for people around the person to communicate and and make that link, that connection. And it's harder and harder for the person with dementia to also make that connection um, with the people that they love. And I guess one of the um, most important things, as as you rightfully say, is about what we call meaningful activity. You can break that down into four different types of activity, which I think are so, so important. And the first one is being productive. And that's exactly as you described, that when we've all had busy, productive lives where we felt that we've run households or important jobs or supported family members, etc., etc., we've felt that actually we're integral to the people around us. We're needed, we're valued. And when somebody has dementia, it's really easy for us to take over and do for that person. But it's so vital that we don't do that, that we create opportunities for the first person to still have that sense of self and still feel that they can make a difference. Now, I know a lady living with dementia who, living with her son and daughter-in-law, and wanted desperately to feel that she wasn't a burden on them. That was one of the most important things to her, that she didn't feel a burden, that she didn't feel that she was cramping their style, if that makes sense. And so, actually... Far from doing things for her, she was encouraged to take on the family's mending. And actually all the extended family now regularly bring to her buttons to be sewn on or things to be torn. And she's really got that role now. And that's made a huge difference to her. The other area that I think is really important, so having something that's productive, but also leisure. We all need to just have fun, something that gives us joy. I think that's vital. And that's about somebody's past and somebody's personality and things that they may have always enjoyed and being able to somehow adapt the activities so the person can still do that. And the third one is self-care. And that might be taking care of our bodies, it might be exercise, it might be eating, drinking, it might be bathing, it might be walking, or it might just be taking care of the home, the environment we live in. Lastly, one that's often forgotten is making sure that the person's got plenty of rest or restoration and that's not just sleep it's much more than just sleep that's about us recharging our batteries and that will be different for depending on our personality type going back to what you were saying previously some of us will recharge our batteries by having time alone and having peace and tranquility and for others it'll be about being around other people for some people it might be a spiritual recharging of batteries so it's looking at all of those four elements and making sure there's a really good balance now for most of us we're able to decide 
the level of activity of those four activities that we want to do. But as dementia advances, people become more and more dependent on their family and their carers to actually promote that and help the person achieve those activities and therefore still maintain the essence of who they are. Without that support, uh, people with dementia can often become really withdrawn and isolated and unhappy. Yes, I can I can totally see that. And also I think it goes back to it being quite frightening for the person, the person around. Yes. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Do people in your experience who have dementia know they have it? Again, it's different for everyone. But my feeling is, having nursed many, many people with dementia, is that they might not necessarily understand it's dementia, but they will understand that something's wrong. And they may be in denial about that. They might not accept it. But actually they will have an awareness on some level that things don't feel right, that they can't think or communicate as they had been able to. I would say most people that I've met with earlier stages of dementia absolutely have that awareness. But sometimes as the dementia progresses, that clear awareness 
will deteriorate yeah. and the person yeah. will just have that un- idea that something's not right. Gosh, that must be ever so frightening. Mm. Um, now, given that what we've said that, you know, sometimes we don't know what's happening, someone's getting old, is it dementia? But when it becomes kind of obvious and people start making mistakes, forgetting, getting confused, what's the right thing to do? I mean, you've said to me, you know, feelings, not facts, which mm. I am going to cross-stitch onto a cushion. <laughs> um, but how much should you correct a person who has dementia? Say they confuse you for their brother. Say they don't know who you are. Say they just get things wrong. Does it depend on what they're saying? I mean, what's the general advice? Should you correct people? Should you enter their reality? That's, I think, one of the questions that most people ask, and it's, it is a difficult one. I would say that on the whole, the important thing is to maintain somebody's feeling of well-being. So if you imagine that you make a mistake, you fall over, for example, the first thing you'll do is look around to see if anybody's witnessed it because of that feeling of embarrassment. So the first thing we want to do is to try to take the focus away from the person making a mistake to the situation being at fault. So if I can give you an example, a person with dementia struggling to undo the jam jar and actually it's not difficult um, and you can see it's not difficult but the person's just got into a muddle and really struggling but the first thing to say rather than saying oh, why can't you open the jam jar you would say those jam jars get really tight aren't they really difficult I'm not surprised you're struggling can you see the slight difference there mm. and it would be the same if somebody's got muddled with recognizing a person I always think back to the time I might go into a shop and somebody recognises me and they start talking to me and for a moment I can't think how I know them, where I picture them from. So rather than listening to what they're saying, I'm just in panic mode thinking, who are they, who are they? If you imagine that experience, if you take that panic from the person by filling in the gap. So if a person with dementia, say say it was my mother, comes up to me and I was to say, hi, I recognise she's not knowing who I am, it's Julie. And I give her the information before she needs it. That takes mm. panic and allows the person to see what, what the situation is. So there's lots of things we can do to almost preempt some of the problems. But the most important thing is not to get into arguments and debates about correcting someone. If in their world, that's how it feels, they feel that yesterday they were on holiday in Devon, and actually it was two years ago. It doesn't actually matter the date. The important thing is they're trying to communicate to you about the holiday in Devon, and that's the thing to focus on and to discuss and to talk about rather than when it was. It's the memories, it's the feelings, it's the association with what they were talking about. And so, yes, going along with what's important to that person is much more important than establishing exactly the facts about when or where it happened. Yeah, I mean, when you say it, it sounds really calming and nice. But I think sometimes for people in the situation, they have their own panic that they need to quell. And I think that can be really hard. But what would you say to someone who, for example, this is a really common one, and I'm sure you've heard it, so-and-so stealing from me? Because just because someone's confused or has dementia, you don't want to stop believing them. No. But, you know, old people quite often, in my experience, professionally and personally, again, say that someone's stealing from them. Now, when you've established that that's not correct, what do you say to them? Do you say, no, nobody's stealing? Do you say, are they stealing? What do you say to that? 
I really value what you said initially. I think it's vital that we still believe people with dementia and don't immediately write it off. So absolutely, first thing would be to establish that it isn't the case. But then I think, again, it's to tap into the emotion of loss. So if somebody's saying they've been stolen from, it's often attached to the fact that they're feeling a loss. And often that loss might not necessarily be the object that they feel that's been stolen. It might be the feeling that they've lost losing their independence, that losing their ability to communicate, that they've lost their friends because people aren't visiting as much, etc., etc. So what I would really recommend is something we call validation, which is tapping into that feeling. Rather than, no, that hasn't gone missing, that hasn't been stolen, we say, that must feel really upsetting. Um, How awful to have lost something that is important to you. And actually help the person to open up about how they feel about having lost something. You'll often find that very quickly after you do that, you move away from the object and actually to their feelings about what is important to them at that time. Thank you, that's really helpful. This does bring me on to a question I have, which I'm not sure you can answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway, which is that a lot of people who are in their 80s and 90s now come from a generation where they didn't really talk about their feelings. I'm generalising massively, but you know this is what I've seen in letters I get and things that I hear. They may have been quite sort of difficult parents, and now they have dementia and actually those sort of conversations are really hard because if you say to them some of the things that you've said, which totally makes sense to me, but, you know, that must be really hard, they'd reply with, well, yes, it is. My life's been really hard. Mm. And they can be quite brittle. And I think that for family members who have endured a lifetime of this, it's quite hard. I suppose my question is, how do you deal with a difficult parent who's got dementia? Yes, and I think, obviously, dementia is very unlikely to improve a relationship that's been difficult throughout two people's lives. Um, In fact, it's probably going to make things a lot more difficult and a lot more tense. However, I mean, I do remember an example of a situation with a a mother and um, daughter that had been very tense throughout their lives and the person with dementia was reaching the end of their lives. I talked through validation with the daughter and we talked about trying to meet feelings but also to be able to express her feelings because the caregiver, the carer, the family member is also entitled to focus on feelings. And for the first time, when we talked about validation, they actually shared their disappointment in the relationship that they'd had. And that was really powerful. There were a lot of tears. But it's vital that people can recognise that things aren't perfect. And sometimes emotions are really difficult. And it's not always about talking about feelings. It might be about demonstrating by a non-verbal body language that we empathize with somebody it might be that you mirror in your facial expression a look of shock or horror or of loss etc just to show the person that you you understand what they're expressing and also i think this is a good time to say if you are the carer in whatever capacity it's so important to look after yourself i mean i know from my own experience if i haven't tended to my needs i'm much less Mm. able to be patient and kind. And I think it's about finding what works for you. Mm. Also, it's a process, isn't it? I mean, you know, the person with dementia has to adapt and the people around them also have to learn what they can and can't do. Julie, what are the sort of top concerns to your the Dementia UK helpline? I think there's various different concerns. We have so many different calls and I would really encourage 
anybody to call us, to call the Admiral Nurse Helpline if they want to discuss any aspect of what we've discussed today. But I would say that accessing support is certainly something that we get a lot of calls about, people wanting to know what's out there, what support, whether that be from um, health and social care to local groups, that sort of calls are very, very common. We get lots of calls about behaviour that's perceived to be challenging, where people are really struggling with somebody's perhaps behaving in a way that's very, very difficult or might be causing harm to them or risk. So lots of calls about that. Lots of calls about how to communicate, very similar to what we've just discussed. Lots of calls about care options, so those transitions in a person's journey. So that might be a transition from being able to be independent to actually, is it now time to think about a care package? Or is it now time to think about a care home? Or the transitions between the stages of dementia when somebody starts to deteriorate and they feel actually this is, we've entered into a whole new world now because we just sort of got used to that. That was working, but now the person's deteriorated. It's presented lots of new things. So again, lots of calls about that. So I'd say those are probably the top four things. You mentioned there about calls to the helpline, about if someone's got difficult behaviour. And one thing we haven't touched on is If the dementia manifests physically, like if they start to become aggressive or violent, do you have any advice for someone who's struggling with that? Yeah, first and foremost, obviously, if somebody's becoming violent, it is about keeping the other person, the carer, safe and having a really clear safety plan and being able to call for emergency help immediately if needed Um, and not feeling guilty about that, but recognising that this is a stage where both people will need some support and intervention. But generally with what we identify as aggressive behaviour, there's generally a reason why somebody's um, behaving in that way. And as the dementia advances and it's harder and harder for somebody to communicate, we will notice that they will demonstrate how they're feeling by their behaviour. And so it may be that they're feeling really upset or angry, but they can't articulate that. So actually, rather than saying... I don't want to eat that, they'll push it out of the way. Or you've upset me, they'll hit out rather than being able to say that. So I think it's about trying to identify what it is that the person's saying through their behaviour. Sometimes it's really helpful to keep a sort of a journal to see what triggers the behaviour. Is there a common link, a common theme? Is it, for example, every time they get something wrong and therefore they're feeling embarrassed, that will precipitate an aggressive um, episode? That's really, really helpful. And it's trying to work for almost a checklist of what could be wrong. A really nice acronym that I think is helpful for professionals and carers to look at when somebody's upset. And that is CEASE. C being for comfort so look to see if is the person in pain are they hungry are they thirsty are they too hot are they too cold but they can't communicate that e would be for environment improve thinking about is it too dark because we know that if the lighting is poor things might appear more frightening because people can't see clearly is it too noisy and the television's on and it's overwhelming the person and making them feel frightened A would be for activity, which we've already discussed. S is social contact, thinking about facilitating visitors, social inclusion, making trying to bridge that gap of isolation that many people feel. 
and E is engagement, and that will be looking at emotion-orientated communication like the validation we've just discussed. So sometimes it's helpful to have a bit of a checklist where you can think, is it that, is it that, is it that? It's one of the most difficult things, Karen, for somebody with dementia is to try and identify what it is that they're trying to communicate. But generally, there will be something that's upsetting the person if they're behaving in an aggressive way. Absolutely get support. Contact a local Admiral Nurse Service or contact the helpline. Get in touch with your GP. Ask to be referred to the local mental health. It may be that medication is needed to support the person as well. Um, so I think it's really important not just to live and say that this is to be expected. This is all part of the dementia. Aggressive behaviour usually is saying something's wrong and we need to work out what's wrong and get that person the support they need. Yes, and also you mentioned earlier, but sometimes... They may have something like a UTI because I think older people sometimes mm. don't drink as much. They may have a deficiency of something like the B vitamins. Yes. Again, that's quite common, isn't it? Absolutely. But obviously, if those things have been eliminated and that continues, then yes, I mean, that's very frightening. Julie, we've talked a lot about dementia connected with old age what about young onset dementia what's the definition of that so yeah generally we would think about young onset dementia being when somebody's affected by the signs and symptoms prior to the age of 65 and the early symptoms for this might be changes in personality behavior language social functioning day-to-day relationships with others as well as the things that we've talked previously about affecting activities of everyday living, concentration levels, spatial awareness, etc. So symptoms can differ. And of course, it's very, very difficult sometimes in younger people, because we often don't immediately think about dementia to make that diagnosis. So people with those signs and symptoms will often take a lot longer to reach a diagnosis than people who are older. I mean, you mentioned things like, you know, changes in personality. Do you mean like they suddenly become what more aggressive, more outgoing, more introspective? Does it vary? It does vary. It could be that the person becomes less inhibited, for example, or more withdrawn. So those sorts of things that you might you might see somebody present as. And do brain exercises work? Keeping the brain active and stimulated really does help. It can help reduce the risk of developing dementia in the first place, but can really help with keeping the brain active during the disease so people live better for longer. So yes, I would absolutely say doing people doing crosswords, <laughs> wordle, all of those things can make a big difference. But just being able to be socially included, being able to talk about what's going on in the newspaper, for example, is just as important as what we would say is brain exercises. And given what you know, And given the job you do, what have you done to prepare for your old age? Oh, well, I have appointed um, a lasting power of attorney and I have made an advanced directive. And those are things because for me, I talked earlier about advanced care planning. I think it's so important that I want my family to know what I would want. 
if I'm not able to make decisions for myself and almost to take that burden of responsibility off them so they are aware now and we've had those discussions they would know what I would want to happen I've written it all down which lots of people would say strange is strange in somebody of my age but I think it's really important that we can have those open conversations really early on it even before we get a diagnosis and without wanting to ask you personally what you've put on it what kind of things would a person put on that? I mean, is this just a document you sort of draw up with your family? Is it a legal document? Yes, yeah, so an advanced directive is, a, is, is legally binding. And it, an advanced directive talks about the ceiling of treatment that I, I would want if my dementia reaches a certain stage. So, for example, you could add on there whether you'd want to be resuscitated or not, or the level of artificial feeding you might want or not and at what stage so an advanced directive is a really helpful thing a lasting power of attorney gives the authority of somebody else to make decisions on my behalf if I can't do so and so those are the things that I've talked to my lasting power of attorney and I've written down that's not legally binding but they're aware of my wishes so for example to say that I wouldn't want my children to feel that they needed me to live with them and if they felt they needed to go into a care home I wouldn't want them to feel guilty about that that's okay to clarify that lasting power of attorney is legally binding that legally gives the person the authority to make decisions on my behalf and to take into account the wishes I might have written down the things I've written down there isn't necessarily legally binding because the lasting power of attorney could override that I see they're your wishes yeah Absolutely. Whereas what's documented in advance directive cannot be overridden by an LPA. Oh, gosh, I didn't know that. So how would you do an advance directive? It's usually drawn up with a solicitor and it would be held in your medical notes. And that overrides the LPA? In those circumstances, the LPA adheres to the advance directive. So you could say, for example, that if you have dementia, you have to be looked after in a five-star hotel. No, it, as I said earlier, <laughs> that would be good, wouldn't it? But no, you can't say that, unfortunately. Advanced directives is specific to care that you would wish to refuse, so treatment that you would wish to right. refuse. You, you can't demand care and treatment, but you can say, I would not want treatment such as resuscitation. Yeah. Thank you to Julie. All the helpers on the Dementia UK helpline are Admiral nurses and I really want to recommend you ring them if you're struggling with anything connected to dementia. Maybe even donate a small regular amount to the charity every month. There's lots of information on the website at DementiaUK.org or you can ring the helpline on 0800 688 There are lots of books available to help you cope with someone suffering from dementia, but Julie recommends two, Naomi Files' Validation Therapy and Tom Kipwood's Dementia Reconsidered. I'll also put this information under the episode description. If you found any books really helpful, do email us at conversationswithannalisa at gmail.com. I also really want to stress that looking after someone with dementia is hard So please make sure you get support and are kind to yourself. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. The series is produced by Hester Kant. The music is by Toby Dunham and our artwork is by Low Cole. 
follow us on Instagram at Pocket Annalisa, or you can email us at conversationswithanalisa at gmail.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, it would mean a lot if you could share it with someone you think might like it and also give us a review on iTunes. Please join us again next time. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in, so much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.